Welcome to That's Illegal, a podcast about international law and the age of nationalism. This podcast is produced by the Global Justice Center, or GJC. Global Justice Center is a legal human rights nonprofit based in New York City. Our work focuses on moving international humanitarian laws from paper to practice. Our staff consists of lawyers with international law expertise who work regularly with partners at the EU and the UN. Given the recent developments of countries turning increasingly nationalistic and the rise in global tensions, we thought it would be a good idea to sit down and talk about the importance of international law, why we have it, and why we should implement it. So every week we are going to take a look at the latest news and break down the legality of what happened using the framework of international law. Today we are joined by GJC staff attorney Grant Shubin and GJC vice president and legal director Akila Radhakrishnan. So there's been a lot of debate about the legality of the U.S. actions in bombing Syria and Afghanistan. So we're going to talk about the laws governing wars and the laws about getting into wars. So if you can maybe just give us a brief overview of those two concepts. Sure. I mean, it's it's actually that simple, I think, that in the international legal realm, there are two broad bodies of law that kind of talk about what happens, talk about armed conflict generally. And one of which is, like you rightly mentioned, like going into war, use of force or what lawyers call use ad bellum. And that is largely now enshrined in the U.N. Charter uh, and just says under these circumstances are when it's lawful to use military force. Traditionally, that is with U.N. Security Council authorization, but we can get into more of that in a little bit. So in addition to there being like the use of force when you're allowed to start a war, when you're allowed to use force, when you're allowed to conduct a military campaign, there's a parallel or a separate set of laws that then kick in talking about what type of force you're allowed to use once you are then authorized. So who you can attack, what you can attack, how large that attack can be. And the point of it is to minimize the suffering of war. So it seems a little bit awkward, but the idea is that the legal conduct of war minimizes the suffering on civilians and it enshrines certain types of protections as well from everything from minimize the destruction on land to the types of weapons that you can use. All of that is regulated by that body. And so both have become relevant because the U.S. bombed a foreign country in Syria in which it was not in armed conflict prior to the bombing. And then it also bombed Afghanistan, a country it was in armed conflict in, but it used the largest non-nuclear bomb in its arsenal. So whether or not we are allowed to bomb Syria is a question. And then whether the, the use of the mother of all bombs in Afghanistan is its own question. And so both use ad bellum and use in bello are hot topics. So let's start with Syria. So can you tell us about the legal rationale for why we bombed? Well, it's unclear. So if you look at different statements from the Pentagon and the language that the president himself has used, what's interesting is that the statement itself uses a lot of the terms of the laws of war in terms of what we were talking about as use in bellow. So they are not really addressing their real rationale for getting in. They've cited a couple of different things. One has been, we're trying to stop the use of chemical weapons. Mm -hmm which is not really a factor that's permissible under the UN Charter to act unless you think that it's an issue of acting in your own self-defense. And then in some cases, you've heard Trump and he's talked about protecting America's national security, but hasn't really drawn a link between what it was about this one particular instance of chemical bombing and what that has to do with the U.S.'s national security interests. I think there's been a lot of talk about crossing the red line, but a lot of like questions about why the U.S. is the one taking action. And and that red so. line isn't one that's actually one that's connected to the laws of getting into war. Well, I mean, that's kind of what well, the controversy be, is right. about. Yeah. So like I mentioned, 
typically in order to use force, the threshold for use ad bellum, the threshold for starting a war is one you need. You just need Security Council authorization, and that requires the Security Council to make a series of determinations and then authorize a limited use of force for a specific objective. Like Akila mentions, there are exceptions to that, like acting in self-defense or collective self-defense, which has its own set of determinations you have to make. But arguably, and this is what lawyers are arguing about right now, there might be an additional exception to using force for humanitarian purposes. I haven't seen anything from Trump or the State Department that specifically invokes that, but lawyers have have invoked it for them saying right. this was a humanitarian intervention it was to stop further chemical weapons and under xyz factors it could plausibly be internationally legal and that's something that comes out of this doctrine that's known as the responsibility to protect so the responsibility to protect is you could call it an emerging norm of law but the idea is that it's kind of got three basic premises under the responsibility to protect the first is you as a state have a responsibility to protect your civilians The second one is you're entitled to assistance from the international community in doing so. The third aspect is when a state is failing to protect its civilians from mass atrocities, from war crimes, from crimes against humanity, then collectively states can get together and act to intervene for humanitarian purposes. But one of the things about that is that technically that still requires Security Council authorization. So you can, under this emerging norm, engage in humanitarian intervention. And what it is, is the humanitarian intervention is not necessarily military. It could be diplomatic means. It could be other means that you can engage in, that you can do to say, you know, it could be assisting with food drops, for example. So if you have a besieged population, they don't have access to food, their own country is doing it. You can engage in ways to maybe create access and pipelines to food. So is that what Obama did the first time Assad used chemical weapons when he went to the UN and they created a deal where Assad would destroy his chemical weapons arsenal? That was an entirely different issue. That was a proper use of perhaps, though, the idea that when something like this is supposed to happen, the Security Council is the venue that you're supposed to go to and say, hey, this is happening. This could be a threat to international peace and security. Authorize action around what can be done to solve this issue. He didn't ask for military means. He asked for diplomatic means. But that's outside of humanitarian intervention. Humanitarian intervention is a norm that kind of exists outside of all this UN charter stuff. And it really, the the place where we first saw it was Kosovo, I think, put into effect, which was the idea that sometimes when you have these roadblocks in places like the Security Council, some things are so unacceptable that states have to have a way to respond to these things that are happening. There's there's obviously a lot of geopolitics going on, a lot of states posturing, but I want to underscore that whether or not you are lawfully using force or whether or not you're entering into force lawfully and the force you use, if that's lawful, that is something that states take really, really seriously. What was the fundamental premise of the UN Charter exactly. and the founding of the United Nations was we have to stop resorting to war when other countries do things that we don't like. And <laughs> yeah, it is hugely important. And if you are perceived to be a internationally errant state. Those are countries like Syria and North Korea and like Iran in certain contexts. And those are states that have sanctions put against them. And so it is the global perception of how you act as a state is something that states take very seriously, even if they don't always act in that way. So Trump should have gone to the Security Council first and said, we should act collectively against Assad. 
I mean, that is one channel. In order to act lawfully in the use of force, yes, you need Security Council authorization. That one way for him to do so lawfully would be to go to the Security Council, say, hey, chemical weapons were used. That's unlawful for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. Let's act. And then the Security Council would all high five together and say, Mm -hmm. let's do it Mm -hmm. like Captain Planet. And then they would go and stop the weapons. That obviously wasn't going to happen because... Russia was going to veto. And it was ju- and it had just been vetoed. The eighth resolution right. had been vetoed, I think, two days or even the day before this particular missile attack was launched. So the right to humanitarian intervention, some lawyers have said one factor in evaluating whether or not humanitarian intervention is legal is if there's deadlock in the Security Council. You're not allowed to use humanitarian intervention, arguably, if there's not deadlock. Well, and he calls it an affirmative defense to right, right UN Charter prohibition to on the use of force. So this is actually Obama's, the person who's putting some of this out is actually was Obama's chief lawyer at the State Department. And he's arguing and saying that when things like deadlocks in the Security Council happen, when there are certain sets of norms, in fact, there may be an affirmative defense to the general principle that countries cannot resort to the use of force. And he has laid out a couple of other factors as well that are relevant to the scenario. For example, he says that the action has to be collective, right? Mm -hmm. And that this was definitely unilateral U.S. action. And, you know, from what I've seen, there hasn't really been any sort of specific endorsement of the U.S. action or support for saying that this was the right thing for the U.S. to do from other states. There are two other examples. This is a third example, I would say, of humanitarian intervention that I can think of. Like Akila mentioned, there's Kosovo, which there was U.N. Security Council deadlock, NATO led by the U.S. conducted strategic bombings in order to try to end the ethnic cleansing. After that happened, the Security Council got together and after the fact, like, good job. We did good. <laughs> that was legal. Yeah, that was legal. Well, but, but also that, like, the U.S. Really- Congress only authorized it, I think, like eight weeks after Clinton took that action in the first place. Right. But that threw a big wrench in for lawyers. Like, whoa, what? We all thought that this had to be U.N. authorization before the bombing. Right. But now you're giving it after. And there was no (laughs) this. What is going on here? So that confused us all. And then you had Libya with Gaddafi, um, similar situation, but you got UN Security Council authorization to conduct strategic bombings to prevent Gaddafi from killing civilians. And what ended up being the problem with that is that it went way too far. And Russia and China began to see that humanitarian intervention as a excuse for regime change. And they just Mm -hmm. clamped right down on humanitarian intervention. And now you were not going to see it again, I don't think, authorized by the Security Council. So Putin has said this was an illegal act of aggression. Is there like legal arguments that keep me right? It's no less illegal than invading Ukraine. (laughs) I mean, if you look at the definition of the crime of aggression or the idea of what aggression constitutes under international law, it is breaching the sovereignty of another country by taking forcible action against them. Right. So in that context, sure, it can be an act of aggression. But exactly the things that we've been talking about, where is it legally permissible for you to take those actions? I think that is then a defense to the idea that this is an act of aggression. Right. So there's still a lot of factors that I think we don't know the answers to. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of the things that we've been talking about, even with humanitarian rention, you know, is this a pretext for the Trump administration engaging into a longer scale war? 
Or is it truly something that was done for humanitarian purposes? Is it a single act? Is there going to be endorsement? There's all these things that we're still looking at. Mm -hmm. Putin's political rhetoric can be correct in one sense, Mm -hmm. but I don't think we necessarily know the answer to that question. Yeah. I mean, I think an analogy would be if you killed somebody, you committed the crime of murder. Mm -hmm. But if you killed somebody trying to defend yourself or someone else, Mm -hmm. then a court in the U.S. would be like, okay, that's excused. That's what's called an affirmative defense. The language is a little bit imprecise because, yes, it might have been an, mm-hmm. an initially I- illegal act that the U.S. did, but the U.S. could potentially have an affirmative defense of humanitarian intervention. Since Assad is using chemical weapons, which is illegal, and they've signed the Chemical Weapons Convention, is there anything happening at the U.N. to put a stop to what he's doing? Or are there repercussions aside from the U.S. take action? Or is the answer just it's deadlock, so there, nothing can happen? Well, I mean, I think I would actually take a step back. So I think a lot of the focus has been on chemical weapons. But what you have from a human rights perspective has been five years of persistent human rights violations Mm -hmm. by a government against its own people. So chemical weapons have been a red line that Obama has drawn, an issue that a lot of people have glommed on. But you've had mass killings. You have torture. You have rampant use of sexual violence as a weapon of war by Assad's forces. So what you're actually seeing is a broader set of mass atrocities that are happening in Syria. You know, the chemical weapons is one thing, but we keep switching from one to another. But what was going on in Aleppo back in November, everyone was horrified by it, but we didn't really take any action. It's interesting, I think, in some sense that the chemical weapons keep being the one thing that for whatever reason seems to spur action. But all of these things, aside from even the chemical weapons prohibition, are prohibited under the other set of laws that we've kind of surfaced, which is use in bellow. International humanitarian law, the Geneva Conventions, use and bellow, they're all in many ways interchangeable terms. They say, what can you and can you not do? Chemical weapons are illegal weapons under the framework that's set up under international humanitarian law. But so is terrorizing your own population. So is committing mass killings. And so in that context, there's been a variety of measures that the UN is pursuing. There's some stuff along the chemical weapons line. There is the Commission of Inquiry on Syria that was set up by the Human Rights Council that have been meticulously documenting the crimes. There's a new investigative mechanism that's trying to get ready for accountability proceedings, trying to build cases, trying to draw together some of these things so that when there are court processes, they can do that. There's been the Geneva talks, which are the peace talks that have mostly just broken down um, every time they've tried to happen. But that's another international supported process to try to bring a diplomatic end to the conflict. And so I think that when we glob on just the persistent failure of the Security Council to pass a resolution, yes, that is a grave, grave problem. And it is an issue. But there are ways that other UN institutions are trying to do what they can to set up for peace, to set up for justice and accountability once the conflict ends. Yeah. So I totally agree that there's this broader issue of persistent human rights violations carrying throughout the conflict. But speaking strictly to the use of chemical weapons, I mean, yeah, ideally, the Security Council would evaluate the situation and then collectively decide to take whatever action is appropriate in order to properly sanction or prevent Assad from ever doing that again. Obviously, that's not going to happen because Russia's there. Parallel to the UN Security Council, there's also the Chemical Weapons Convention created a body called the Office for Prevention of Chemical Weapons. And they are just the administrative body of the convention. And they are charged with two things. One, overseeing the destruction of chemical weapons stockpiles after the convention took effect. And then investigating and issuing reports when chemical weapons are used. They're doing that right now with the most recent attack. I think they concluded maybe maybe two days ago that sarin was definitively used. Um, They're going to issue 
a final report on that. In theory, those reports would then be issued to the Security Council mm-hmm. or the international community generally. The international community generally would be appalled and would take some sort of collective action to prevent it. Including potentially Security Council issued sanctions. And right. including potentially Security Council authorized use of force. Right. Like mm-hmm. that is a that is totally theoretically and legally possible. Right. Practically, it's an entirely different question. So then moving to Afghanistan and the mother of all bombs that we dropped, we want to talk a little bit about the laws that govern war that allow that to happen. Well, so in terms of the laws that govern war, they come from various places that started to be written in like 1906 to 1945. So the laws themselves are written in vague terms. So they talk about certain types of guiding principles that define how it is that you're supposed to analyze something. The idea was in 1945, when they sat down and wrote a convention, the mother of all bombs wasn't even something that was conceptualized. Mm -hmm. And so the language around the laws of war are things like proportionality, which is about saying, okay, if you are taking a military action against somebody, is that in proportion to the act that was taken against you? Right. So if someone comes in to a military base and, you know, they send a battalion of 10 soldiers and they say shoot directly at military targets, that can't be justified by you then bombing a city, right? An opposition city and just dropping a bomb and killing civilians and killing everybody else. In addition to proportionality, another major factor is the idea of distinction. So those are the two major guiding principles are proportionality and distinction. The idea of distinction is one, you're only allowed to target military objects, which is very important then when we think about the dropping of the mother of all bombs. And in terms of what is a military object, you need to try to minimize civilian casualties, right? So this is where you can't bomb schools, you can't bomb population centers, you can't just send cluster munitions in. Or in the case of, for example, what happened in Gaza, you can't send white phosphorus bullets into large, densely populated cities, because even if there are military targets there, the impact that it can have on civilians who are not participating in hostilities makes it something that's not permissible. The basic principles of use and bellow or of international humanitarian law, which is proportionality, which in addition to, you know, your attacks are proportional to your adversary. It's your attack is proportional to the military advantage that you're seeking to derive. So if the military advantage is taking control of a hill or if it's trying to neutralize a certain military base, you are not then permitted to bomb the entire city. So when the United States did its shock and awe campaign in Baghdad, those bombs were specifically intended to bomb the palaces or the military objectives within Baghdad. It didn't just bomb Baghdad. Now, we failed at some of that and we ended up killing civilians, but there is a little bit of leeway allowed in use in Bellow. So proportionality, your attack has to be proportional with the military objective you seek to achieve. Distinction, you have to distinguish between military objectives and civilian objectives. And then necessity, the things you go after have to be of military necessity and proportionate to the military necessity that you seek. So like the classic example would be Nagasaki or Hiroshima, like that in terms of necessity, that's quite severe. You know, you Mm -hmm. needed to win the war. So you destroy an entire city Mm -hmm. and you ended the war. But was that too much? Was it not? Those are the three questions that you generally ask in which use of force is permissible in conflict. Looking at the mother of all bombs To me, it doesn't strike me as all that sexy of a question. Like it was a very, very remote part of Mm -hmm. Afghanistan that appears to be only populated by insurgents or ISIS fighters. Who were the specific target of the action that was being taken? Yeah. 
and the purpose of using this particular bomb was to destroy their network of tunnels that mm-hmm. they right. couldn't get to otherwise. Mm-hmm. So, you know, looking at proportionality, distinction and necessity, I don't see mm-hmm. a striking problem. So, yes, the answer is yes, that was legal. Well, it's internationally well, legal. legal. Well, I think internationally, it's inter- internationally permissible. But there's, I think, an interesting question relating to whether or not it's legal under U.S. law. Because anything continuing in Afghanistan is all pursuant to the 2001 authorization of military force that has predicated basically all our military mm-hmm. actions in the Middle East since September 11th. And mm-hmm. so... How far are we going to let this go before we try to issue another AUMF, another authorization to use military force, or before we finally declare war? That's something that plagued the Obama administration as well. But I also think it's the inherent discomfort with the idea that there's even a legal way to conduct war, right? When we see giant bombs being developed, we see these massive you know, munitions, these new types of warfare being developed. There's the idea that when you step back from the law itself, that it's horrifying that we're developing these things that people have the capacity to do so um, and the capacity to cause mass destruction, right? So then it is a tension between the ideas that, yes, there are these laws which are in place, understanding that war is going to happen and that we do want to create constraints on what is permissible and hold people accountable when they do things that aren't. And then just general notions around the ideas of wanting to live in a peaceful world. And I think that comes up against the development of something that is even the mother of all bombs, even if it was okay in this particular context to use it in Afghanistan. One thing that I think is interesting is that prior to the UN charter creating this prohibition on the just automatic use of force, There was this thing prior to that, like Mm -hmm. by 20 or so years called the Kellogg-Briand Pact that really said, listen, we as an international community abhor the default use of war and use of armed conflict to achieve our international objectives. But before that, that's just what you did. You just went to war. That was how you achieved your international foreign policy. That's how it happened. And then in 1928, the international community said, this maybe isn't the best thing for us to be doing. Mm -hmm. And then that matured into the UN Charter. And it's been, I guess, almost 100 years, but it's been extraordinarily successful. Like it is these are very controversial questions of whether or not force is being used properly and whether or not is an illegal act of aggression and whether or not we were allowed to use certain munitions. And in 1915, that wasn't a question. Mm -hmm. Or 19, say 100 years ago, 1917, that was it was just go nuts, do what you want, get what you want with, you know, that might be taking a little bit of extreme position. But anyway, it's mm-hmm. so that that's a good thing that the world has done. Right. You're right. Well, and the evolution of ideas around a feeling that we are responsible for citizens elsewhere, too. Right. So getting out of some of this insular ideas around, OK, it is horrifying that Assad dropped chemical weapons on its own population and that maybe we do as an international community have a responsibility to do something, right? Mm -hmm. So we don't just sit by and watch horrible things Mm -hmm. happen in the world. So not just the ideas that, you know, you go out there and, you know, if someone makes you mad, you take their land or you just engage in warfare and declare war. And we've definitely had war since the UN Charter, but I think you can see some differences in what war looks like now or even the resort to war as a question that's usually raised before people engage in it. And then I think also growing notions of human rights and growing notions of a joint identity that, you know, just because it's not happening to me doesn't mean I shouldn't care about it. Right. Which I think is really interesting is that his most nationalistic supporters are opposed to this because yeah. it goes beyond right. what the U.S. should be doing because it's not about the U.S. Right. Well, and if we're going to be 
to be cynical about it, if we're going to be taking into consideration human rights violations in motivating use of force, there are a lot of examples that right. we could be there. I mean, there's plenty of places where we haven't acted. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's it's a little bit I mean, it's I don't know. I I struggle with patting ourselves on the back for mm -hmm. using the humanitarian intervention justification in this particular right. context where we have tons and tons of geopolitical capital invested and we want to have a presence in the Middle East. Whereas in Southeast Asia or South America or the, I mean, in, there's a Many news report today that, yeah, in, in the Congo right now, they just discovered an additional 40 mass graves. And that's been the pattern. I mean, they had eight, they knew of 18 before today. I think they found an additional 40. That will not be a part of our national international conversation for the foreseeable future mm -hmm. because it doesn't have the same geopolitical weight for whatever reason. And so, yeah, it's good that we're using these justifications, yeah. but if we're using them tongue in cheek because we want oil, that's a little bit. Of a well, I agree with you. I'm just saying more just general notions of the development of norms around this, I think is important. I think they're definitely political institutions. And so the politicization of these issues is problematic. I just think that the creation of global norms, the creation of these ideas that it is abhorrent to do these things and that we have a duty to do something about it is something that's it's emerging and it is not necessarily been deployed properly or deployed without very specific political interests. But I think maybe this is the optimist in me. This is where I see that it's, it's a good thing for us to be looking at another place and saying it is not okay that their civilians are starving. It's not okay that their country is taking actions against them. I am no supporter of Trump and I'm no supporter of U.S. unilateral action at all. But it is positive for us to be having these conversations. So do you guys have any final thoughts? No, but I think I can summarize generally what we have talked about. I mean, I think first you asked, was the U.S. bombing in Syria lawful? And broadly speaking, that's kind of a big question mark. Ordinarily, in order to use military force, you need Security Council authorization. That wasn't going to happen in this case. So that makes the act arguably illegally internationally, but there might be this emerging norm about humanitarian intervention that is going to be an affirmative defense for the United States. And that is a very topical question being discussed by international lawyers right now. And I think without getting into the nitty gritty details, that is a very difficult question for the U.S. to answer yes to. I, I think that maybe we the international or the humanitarian intervention excuse or affirmative defense is not one we can rely on. Um, and then secondly, you asked about uh, the dropping of the mother of all bombs in Afghanistan. And other than being a visual spectacle, I don't necessarily see there being any international legal issue with the choice of that weapon and the, the way that weapon was deployed in light of proportionality dis distinction and military necessity. Great. Thank you. Thank you both for joining us. We'll be back next week to talk more about international law.